You're listening to Steve Dace On Demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the newly christened Blaze Media. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. 888-933-93 is the number. If you'd like to join us here today, 888-933-93. You can also let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And if you are listening to the podcast version of this later today on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. And if you want to start joining us live and watch us like all the cool kids do, Right now, Dace Christmas gets you a substantially reduced subscription, not just to all the content here at CRTV or The Blaze, but now that we are together in Blaze Media, you get the whole flipping thing. Dace Christmas is your promo code at either The Blaze or CRTV.com. Coming up a little bit later on, we've got today's truth bomb, some fake news or not. A buddy of mine is like a really successful salesperson. And I was looking through a book he wrote for sales professionals. And I was looking through this and I'm like, you know, this would help us sell more than just some merch. You could like sell ideas, values, etc. I mean, this is kind of an evangelistic guidebook. And so we're going to talk to him about that a little bit later on. And we're going to continue our Pop Culture Tuesday series on Christmas. We're going to look at, you know, what is the star of Christmas? What might it have been? You know, the thing we all put in our trees, that or the angel, right? Why? What did that symbolize? We're going to talk about that a little bit later on today as well. But first we begin, as we always do, by getting updated on what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by a powerful moment. Not even CNN could make fun or criticize that. You know, he's not one to mend fences too, too readily. I think he's doing this because he feels he has to do it. And I'm also assuming that General Kelly has had a big hand in it. Apple CEO Tim Cook wants to get rid of hate online. There is no time to get tied up in knots. That's why we only have one message for those who seek to push hate, division, and violence. You have no place on our platforms. I believe the most sacred thing that each of us is given is our judgment, our morality, Our own innate desire to separate right from wrong. Choosing to set that responsibility aside at a moment of trial is a sin. Let's check in on Kellyanne Conway's institutions. George Conway reacts to Trump's latest Mueller tweet by citing witness tampering statute. Okay. I'm a tariff man. When people or countries come in to raid the great wealth of our nation, I want them to pay for the privilege of doing so. It will always be to the best to max out our economic power. 
Right now, we are taking in dollar signs, billions in tariffs. Make America rich again. Don't spend your emotional energy on Sully H.W. Bush. According to the College Fix, Cal State San Marcos held a so-called whiteness forum where topics ranging from America's systemic racism to other racist stuff was discussed. The verdict, VeggieTales is racist. Here's an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez update. And it's inevitable that we can use the transition to 100% renewable energy as the vehicle to truly deliver and establish economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. And finally, some hope for our nation's future generations. America is trash, and I look forward to the day it burns to the ground. Okay, is there any other things that you want to say other than that? No. Okay. All right. That was a good. That was good. Welcome to Slightly Offensive. My name is Elijah, and you're here at USC, the University of Southern California. Is America a good country or not? It can be. It can be great. Uh, right now, it's eh. You have a bad opinion of America. Why? Because my f- is over here is full of shit. Who are, who are the MFs? Huh? Who are the MFs? Yeah. Donald Trump and his people. You feel me? Donald Trump and his people. They full of shit. So, what do you think currently defines being an American? Not freedom. <laughs> what do you think other than freedom? Um, yeehaw. All those red states, uh, Republican, conservative. We're trying to outvote them, but it's not really happening until they die off, kind of. And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less. Oh, boy. So many canards. So little time. Um... I'm not even going to address the item with CNN and one of its people and their coverage. It's just, it's beneath me. It, it's it, There was a song when we were kids, Todd, Ain't Worth the Salt in My Tears, and, and it's just not, I'm not, it's not worth it. Um, I'm really uncomfortable with the commentary on uh, Kellyanne Conway and her husband George. Yeah, that's just weird. I'm really uncomfortable with it. I'm on. Un- I'm uncomfortable with it on every level. I'm on. Uh, you know, it's it's first of all, it's a marriage, and relationships are complicated, and you don't have any idea what goes on there behind closed doors. Um, it is, it is just as possible. I. I know Kellyanne Conway. I wouldn't say I know her. I've never met her husband, okay? So I wouldn't I wouldn't say I know that dynamic whatsoever. All right? And when I say I know her, we would she would know me on a first name basis, but it's not someone that I would either I would either consider a a close confidant, for example, like Hogan Gidley who's the deputy communications director at the White House. We him and I have been friends for years. All right, so him and I are friends. I don't know. I don't know. I know Kellyanne Conway. See the distinction I'm yeah. trying to draw. So it's just as possible that George, her husband, is making her life more difficult as it is he's making her life more easy. And what do I mean by that? It is. It is just as possible that he's acting in a way that is unbecoming of a husband in his commentary about her husband's boss, who just so happens to be the president of the United States, as it is that 
he's out there doing these things specifically because maybe there's some messages out there that um, she'd like the president to hear. I think this is good cop, bad cop and, stuff and, and, going it, on, and, yeah. and he otherwise would not hear them. And, and if you think this is far-fetched, remember when uh, the president uh, flirted with Mitt Romney for secretary of state? You guys remember that? Oh, yeah. And Kellyanne Conway and a bunch of people that were kind of more of the Trumpista wing of the Trump coalition. So you had the, you know, the party swampy wing of the Trump coalition was like, yeah, Mitt, Secretary of State would be great. And then you had the Seb Gorka uh, and Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, Trumpista wing, and they're like, no. And I mean, she was out there trashing Romney and saying what a terrible choice he would be while her boss was considering it. And you have to understand that his style of leadership is unlike anything we have ever seen. It, there is a shark take aspect to Trump. Um, when, I, when I was around him for a limited period of time early in his primary run, I think one of the reasons he liked me is I did not go out of my way to fet him like everybody else did. I sort of sensed this is a guy that actually likes somebody um, who uh, has a killer instinct that isn't that that's why if you look at the people that have the people that did the most to emasculate themselves for him, none of them got jobs. Rudy Giuliani never got a job. He's got, he's, he kind of has a job now, but he didn't get to get the attorney generally. You know, a lot of those people didn't get job. Chris Christie didn't get a job. You know, Rex Tillerson, a former corporate rival of Donald Trump, got one of the most coveted jobs, you know? And I I think when there's a court of owls there inside the West Wing, and, you know, remember the Diary of Wimpy Kid movies? I do. Where where they had like the daily countdown of who's popular and you went up and down? I do. I think there's that kind of palace intrigue there sometimes. Sometimes it's Javanka's days that they're running the show, and sometimes it's General Kelly's days, and you know, and sometimes it's uh, you know, uh, it's the it's the Heritage Foundation's days, and it kind of it, it you know, it it rotates, and it it can be mercurial on a given day if you know, who Trump thinks is doing the best to serve his particular interests, and if you can't get your if you can't get your message through, um. When you have a, a guy who doesn't have the tradi- doesn't use the traditional leadership metrics or processes that we've seen from U.S. presidents, regardless of party, but has more of a Shark Tank, you know, natural selection. This is more of the Joker uh, splitting the pool cue in half. I was half thinking and say, the same thing right now. I we're was. gonna have tryouts. Yes. All right. I, he enjoys that. Um, he and you know, Trump enjoyed my buddy Sam Nunberg and Corey Lewandowski fighting each other for control of his. And in his mind, it was like, you know what? Whoever was the most ruthless in getting my attention wins, you know? I don't think that can be stressed enough. He enjoys being entertained. And Lewandowski went out there and used and basically dug up some Facebook posts of, of Nunberg to destroy him. And that's how he got the advantage over Sam. And Sam will tell you that, you know? And so I, I, I'm not, I would not automatically jump to the conclusion that George Conway is a terrible husband. It could absolutely be that there are some things his wife would like to be able to say or to penetrate the, the, the current zeitgeist in the West Wing that won't get through based on who's up and who's down today. And 
husband's job and his, and he's actually, it's the other way around. I'm not saying I know that to be the case. I'm just saying you don't know. And it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an unusual dynamic. I've never seen anything like it in my career. It's far beyond uh, Mary Matlin and James Carville because they were on opposite sides politically. These are two people that have been operatives of the same political party are married and this is going on. Uh, so I, I wouldn't leap to conclusions. And I will also say this. Maybe the, maybe the last person on planet Earth that ought to chime in publicly about the marriage dynamic between George and Kellyanne Conway <laughs> I know. is a guy who watched his old man throw his mom out to the curb when she had too much tread on his tires. Okay. I mean, come on, man. That's Darwin we have, Awards level yeah, yeah, of can lack we have, of self-awareness. No doubt. Can we have, I mean, honestly, Eric Trump, please, <laughs> please, man. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, no, dude. He's a chip off the old block though, to that extent, I, I mean, you know? His that's ability. just, I, no, man. Your brother just left his wife for what's her face on Fox News, right? Yes. I mean, come on, man. Come on. You know? I just think I might want to sit this one out. Yeah, I know. You know, you started this whole thing talking about how you didn't want to spend time and talking about things that are beneath us. If we didn't talk about things that are beneath us, Steve, we wouldn't fill time. I mean, look at this whole thing. <laughs> it's beneath everybody. I will say this. My standard for what's beneath me has, yeah. <laughs> has dramatically lowered. All right. But that, I, I, I guess what I was trying to say with that scene in clip is I know they can do better trolling than that. I know they can be nuttier than that. I know they can be crazier than that. I, I that to me is you know you, you, that's uh, you know you brought up a, a kid from AAA you know, to to start a a spot game for you on a rain delay on a rain out, and I'm just I'm not addressing that. I I, I know they're capable of much worse. That is worthy of my my time. That See, I take d- was so weak it was I, not. I don't I don't think you really mean that, Steve. I think Todd just kind of made you say that right now. There may be some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, you, you made me clarify what I meant by that. Because you're right. We are, we, are, we are forced to address indignities on a constant basis. So my clarification is addressing CNN most of the time is an indignity. Because it, it is an indignity unto itself. This one, though, it's such a weak indignity. It's so contrived, so forced that it's just you, do better. Do better. One of my favorite things since 2016 is seeing total depravity guy here. Just look it for real in the eye, not in theory, and just be like, "Wow, didn't see that one coming." Over yeah, when, and over and over again. When I saw that from Eric Trump last night, and that <laughs> all, am I just I retweeted like, "Wow," and I, I didn't even know. Honestly, I, I just don't know that yours is the family that ought to be chiming in on the marital dynamic of anybody else. And I think that's a, in general, I don't think it's anybody's place to be chiming in when you don't know what was really going on. You're not, you're not, you didn't, you're not raising those kids together. You're not sharing that bed together. You don't know in general, you don't know. Uh, but in, when you've had several public marriage failings of spectacular fashion in your own family, certainly not a bomb for you to lob. Probably Worthy of just uh, moseying along. And and we'll leave it at that. Can you put Trump's tariff tweet? Do you still have that? Can you put uh, it back uh, up there? No. Okay. Um, 
why is it, it did the president of the united states say it was okay for people to come in and raid our wealth provided they yep they that's why i started laughing they pay for it yeah that's why i started laughing does that make any sense to you I, I know I'm going to. I, I know I'm going to get. About, I'm going to get yeah. seven emails from somebody from different people trying to make sense of what that makes. Okay, I, so it is a good thing if they come in and they raid our wealth. Then, what what's nationalist about you may raid our wealth, provided you pay us for it? That sounds awfully corporatist to me. Does that sound nationalist to you? It sounds. Does not sound very populist? Huh? It sounds Trumpist to me. How so? Explain. Because we're just, we're given a bad name to even things like nationalism by associating that term with Donald Trump. I mean, he, he's just... There we go. There Thank we you. There we go. Uh, I mean, this is the, the all caps at the end. When making, people or countries come in to raid the great wealth of the U.S., I want them to pay for the privilege of doing so. When there's a certain... um. There's a certain lot saying, take my daughter's instead vibe to that. I, I Help me to understand that. I don't know. What does that mean? Don't do that. This is like, remember all those foreign policy speeches when he was on stage uh, running for president? Those speeches more than anything else. He would come back with the same, like, what was that? He spent all, he's not, he, he has no dots he's really trying to connect. Does he look like a guy with a plan? Yeah, there is that, no plan that in that statement. He's basically saying, yes, I am America's economy's uh, John. That's essentially what he's saying. Yeah. You, can spend, you can spend a night with us, but you got to pay up first. I, I, I just, I don't want countries raiding our wealth at all. Why, 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 would I, why would I want somebody to come in here to raid our great wealth? And who are they paying? They ain't paying me. So... What is that? Is that that there's there is nothing populist about that statement on any level, let alone does it even make any intellectual sense? He listen, he's the guy with the gold toilets, and and you we've heard the stories about him. You've probably told me some of them about how he he kind of enjoys showing look at in the inner sanctum and look at my closet full of ties and watches. Would you like mm-hmm. one? And here's my beautiful plane mm-hmm. and things. When he talks, he has that like he's and this is why the pe- the people There's a there's a there's a Hezekiah showing off peddling, yeah. showing off his trophies to the Babylonians aspect yeah. of Trump. There's no doubt yes, about that. Yes, and so this yeah. is why even the, he's the uh, the rich Manhattanite, the little people connect like him. He's come in and share and bathe in my tubs full of cash sort of thing. He used the term raid. He wasn't thinking about it. I think in my guess is that that's what he's talking about. If you're going to bathe in our fountains of of money, uh, then and I, which I'm more than happy to share with you, little people across the world. Then at least you can, and this is the part. Then at least you can uh, bow before me in the proper way. He loves to be loved. I mean, isn't this is just Trump being Trump? That's what I mean. It's not. It's not nationalist. It's not. It's it's you can't apply any one term to him. He he is just him. That's he why is love. He is love. No. I mean, since we had VeggieTales in the montage, I mean, the only thing missing to your little rant there was uh, 
and 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 I, I just need you to bow down to the chocolate bunny. Yeah. That's essentially the only thing missing. You, you just said something I have tried to say to numerous folks I've done interviews with since his the his rise to power. There is no Trumpism. There is no Trumpist ideology. Right. It's There's just, a persona. It, 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 there is no, there, there is zero populism in that tweet. Zero. It is, it is essentially, that's the language of the very swampy Republican corporatists you can't stand, which is, that's the global, yeah, you guys can come in, you bet, yeah. Our country is uh, wide open, come in and rate it, you know. Just, uh, you know, pay a toll. And uh, as Aaron said, you, you know, uh, you're the, you, you, just make sure you leave the money there on the table and have, have your way. I mean, I, I, there's nothing populist about that. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. And Unless not the mention, UN's version of populism yes, is the one we're talking about. Not to about. mention, you're, they don't pay the tariffs. The customers do. Consumers are paying that, you know? So <clears throat> um, there's no cohesive ideology. There's just a persona. And that's kind of what you're speaking to. Yeah. Right? It's jello on a door. They're, they're, in terms of its intellectual or ideological consistency, it's just it's just a persona. Which goes back to what you're saying about Kellyanne Conway at all the stories we learned what a couple months ago about the people like putting papers or taking papers away from his desk that he may or may not sign. I mean, when when that White House is ultimately about nailing jello against a wall in all things, and you want to be a part of somehow. Let's take Kellyanne Conway at faith, like as faith value as a valuable, interested public servant. Well, then you learn that the game you need to play involves, you know, a degree of sleight of hand that perhaps we aren't accustomed to. Speaking of sleight of hand, we we, we cannot let this segment go without addressing uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook's comments and Aaron's montage, and he used some key words there. And a few months ago, before we made this merger, I, I made an observation about progressivism. That if, if you're new to our show, because you maybe hadn't watched or followed us in depth until we came to The Blaze, and now we're, you know, Blaze Media with the merger between The Blaze and CRTV, this is an observation you probably have not heard me talk about yet. But you guys are going to remember, a few months ago, I, I made the observation about progressivism that it has to borrow an expression, and no pun intended, it has transitioned that it is leaving behind the nihilistic postmodernism that it unleashed on the culture in order to deconstruct the pre-existing moral and societal norms, right? It, it's kind of leaving that behind now. And now it is going into evangelistic mode. It is going into terraforming mode. It is, it is real. It is, and, and this was always the plan. It was never the plan just to, uh, to leave with nihilism. That, that's why we did to go back and you watch the seven deadly worldviews that we did at the very start of this year when worldview was our number one theme. Secular humanism is the last stage, but what did I say about it? It's always a temporary stage. And postmodernism is, is, the, is the number one device of secular humanism, but it is always a temporary stage, setting the stage for the new great transcendent truth that will take the place of the one that's been removed. Okay. And this is, this is, you see this play out in Animal Farm. You see this play out in world history. And now you're watching them now. Now the term judgment is good, right? I mean, d judgment was terrible until like 
a month ago. Yeah. Sin, right? Now wrong. we're using the term sin. Now we're talking about right and wrong as absolute standards. Morality. Morality. Yeah. What, are we in church here, Steve? Yeah. Yes. What's the answer yes, to that? Yes, we are. Yes, we are, brother. Yes, we are. And we have been this entire time. It's just our churches don't recognize it. And they think they, and, 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 and most of it is because they have farmed out their duty to the culture to parachurch organizations. Like the one we are sitting in right here today, the family leader in Des Moines, Iowa. But for every one of these parachurch organizations that attempts to rise above the typical corruption of partisan politics, otherwise we wouldn't be broadcasting from this one if they didn't. A lot of them are just shills for the political parties. And then what happens is the church creates a fait accompli, a self-fulfilling prophecy. We farm out our, our cultural calling to these parachurch organizations. These parachurch organizations get corrupted by partisan politics. And then we say, well, we can't address politics because it's partisan and it will corrupt the church, which is true. But it's because of what if the abrogation you did at the outset, that, that you removed right and wrong from the transcendent banner that you carry as the institution of the church outside of space and time. You outsourced it to the political process, set it up to fail. Yes. And then once it failed, you then said, well, we can't address these things anymore because doing so just corrupts and divides our churches. It is true that it corrupts and divides your churches. You know why it corrupts and divides your churches? Because you outsourced it to be corrupted and divisive. That's why. You made the mess. And Dr. Frankenstein always hates the monster he created. And so now, now the progressives are saying, since you fell into the trap, since you slipped on the banana peel, not only that, you fell for the banana in the tailpipe, since you fell for it. And now, you're, now you're or, most of your churches that are orthodox, small o in nature, are, are divorced from any cultural engagement on a moral level whatsoever. Well, nature abhors a vacuum, don't you know? Someone's got to fill that space. Someone's got to go into the culture and talk about innate right and wrong and sin. And judgment? The CEO of Apple is dropping the word judgment to applause. (laughs) And then along comes those progressives to say, "Um, we're happy to fill the vacuum that you fell for our trap in creating in the first place. It used to just be called human, not to kill your own kid. Now it's called conservative or Christian or pro-life. We should just call that a human being. It's how things have changed across the board now. The church walked right in. The left held out a clenched fist and the church walked right into it face first repeatedly. And a lot of times they did it because it's what they also wanted to do. Because nothing empties your churches more than addressing these very sorts of topics. What do you think the Corinthians, how do you think they felt when they got that letter from Paul? Think the ranks swelled? Think people were like, you know, think there were a lot of fence sitters in Corinth who were like, damn, I was thinking about checking out this new Christianity thing. And then I read Paul's letter telling me that basically I'm a total reprobate band for hell. And I just thought, I need to get more of that. That, That's not the way this works. This is why Roger's book, The Benedict Option, that's not a new thing. That's, that's right. a timeless thing. That's exactly right. And it's not what most of our audience thinks that it is. Right. Most of our audience thinks that it's a unilateral retreat. It's not. It is, it is essentially saying, 
put yourself in strategic position to stop compromising your values in the process. Right. And there, that is, that, if I didn't tell you who said that or what the context was, and if I told you that was a speech Jerry Falwell Sr. gave in 1981, would you believe it? Oh, I'd say that'll preach. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Cook sounded an awful moral majority there. Sounding awfully judgy there. Sounding awfully moralistic there. Huh. As the great prophet Admiral Akbar once said, it's a trap. And we walked right into it. Voluntary. And now, and now we're stuck because we know it's a trap, but the money's good. Not calling it out. And the coffers are full. And the seats are warmed with warm bodies. And so now we kind of don't know what to do now. And we let the enemy through the gate. And now we're, we're at the place Rome was one day when there was a mass rustling out over the seven hills. And it was the Visigoths coming over the wall. Funny thing was, though, when the Visigoths came over the wall, a lot of their cousins were wearing Roman soldier uniforms, took off their uniforms, and had a little family reunion and helped them sack Rome because they let the enemy into their gates too. do with that what you will. Hey, make sure while you still can, before it's too late, you protect the most valuable asset investment most Americans will ever make. That's their own home because right now it's a target. Thieves are looking at your equity and they are looking at it with a target on it. Because most of your home titles, in fact, pretty much all of our home titles these days, are online. They don't have to go down to a Bureau of Records or a county recorder anymore, uh, show an ID, and then spend hours combing through mountains of records looking for this particular home title deed. All of this stuff is online. A lot of times they can just figure out how to hack their way in and forge a signature. They can get access to it. You know, the folks at Home Title Lock showed me how easy it was to go after my home title, and that signature looked a lot like mine. I didn't sign it, but if, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought that was my own signature. So I guess the other uh, part of the story is I need a better signature. But one way to protect myself from the very lame, simplistic signature I currently have is to make sure I have home title lock. They put a virtual barrier around your home. So if they detect any sinister activity at all, they are absolutely on it. And you may be thinking, hey, I've already got identity theft. This will cover it. No, it won't. That's a totally separate matter, separate jurisdiction. And for just pennies a day, you can have home title lock protecting the equity of your most valuable investment. And if you're wondering, hey, is, is someone going after my home title already? Is it safe? Well, right now, $100 value at Home Title Lock. They're offering it to all of you here on Blaze Media for free. If you go to HomeTitleLock.com, that's HomeTitleLock.com. You'll get a free title scan and report at HomeTitleLock.com. 
All right, time for today's truth bomb, which is, again, a contrived attempt to drive pre-orders to my upcoming book, Truth Bombs, Confronting the Lies Conservatives Believe, available right now for pre-sale at Amazon.com. For the nine of you that are fans of this show, that should be at least nine pre-sales that we sell today. Amazon.com book releases on January 15th. Today's truth bomb comes courtesy of Chris Pratt. About 2,000 years ago, God sent an angel named Gabriel to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin who was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. This is a descendant of King David. That virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And the Bible says, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. That seems confusing to me, so I'll just paraphrase. She was kind of scared because an angel just fell up from the ceiling. <laughs> you know, that clip goes on. Essentially, arguably the number one star in the world right now is using Disney as a platform to read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke to a watching, unbelieving world. And a few months ago, when Pratt did this on MTV, and remember we had this conversation and several people were like, well, yeah, but he didn't do this right, or he didn't say this, or he didn't say that. And I pointed out, listen, I, I get being disappointed by folks. You have no idea what it took for him to stand up there in that room and even go to the extent that he did. And still a lot of people were, well, yeah, and, and I get it. You know, how many celebrities, because they quoted a Bible verse once or, you know, um, you know, like the Clint Eastwood movie, uh, have we given Zondervan multi-year you know, year book deals to and Fox News contributorships at all, right? And then they burn us later on, right? We, we've been there before. But in this case, I pointed out to the audience, I, I would not be so quick to, and hasty to cast this aside. Well, that's next level right there. He's, a, he's openly evangelizing, guys. And unashamed, he is proclaiming the virgin birth of Christ, unashamed, and using his platform as arguably the biggest movie star in the world. And there will likely come a time he will disappoint you. He's not the hero of this story. All right, that's not the point. Chris is not the hero of this story. He's the vessel for the hero of the story. Pray for that vessel. Because now the, 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 the bolder he gets, the more the target will be on his back. I don't have anything close to the platform he does, but I know a little bit about this, okay? And um, there's a woman named Candace who has been sending me weekly prayer emails for years now. And sometimes there are rebukes, like, you shouldn't have said this, that was potty mouth, you're better than that. I have read them every week, and she's been sending these to me long before you guys came to work here. When Jen and Rebecca were here, she was sending these to me. And I have never missed one. And even though 
Sometimes I got spanked when I read them. It was just incredibly comforting that somebody was still out there praying for me not to blow it here. Well, even more than I already have. So Chris isn't the hero. He's not reading the gospel of Chris Pratt, but he is using the platform that God has given him to spread and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That guy's on your team. You should welcome him. I'm not saying don't hold him accountable. I'm not saying become a fanboy, but you know, this is now where we become that large cloud of witnesses. The author of Hebrews talks about we, when he's doing things like that, that's when we need to cheer because I don't know if anybody's been looking around the culture lately. The list of our allies grows thin Aragorn. All right. And that's one. And frankly, if you gave me a choice, would I rather have a hundred of these kinds of C-list, D-list guys over here, or essentially this era's Harrison Ford? He's swinging a pretty big stick right now. That's a, that's a nice ally to have. Cultivate that relationship. I'm not saying compromise what you believe for him, but when he is openly out there now taking shots for the gospel and dropping truth bombs like that, cheer that guy on and welcome him on your team. That's my truth bomb today. He, in twice now has been the embodiment of one of the most perfect endings of a movie and it is uh ultimately a christian movie uh that i have ever seen and it's also uh, the line the witch in the wardrobe uh it it in it's it's kind of petering out now and they don't know what to do with it but that first effort i thought was great and at the end after the kids have grown up in narnia and they come back through the wardrobe and to the very time that led them there when the ball broke the window. And so the professor comes in with the ball he found in the broken window and he looks at them. And remember, the professor has been there before many, many years ago. And he says, what were you doing in the wardrobe? And the mm-hmm. young Peter says, sir, and he, the young Peter doesn't know that about him. And he says, sir, I don't think you'd believe me if I told you. And the professor gets just a a smile from heaven on his face. And he says, try Try me. me. Yeah. Chris Pratt is doing that. He's telling the story because it's worth trying. He's letting the lion out of its cage and it's beautiful to behold. And I know that he had, I'm well aware of the fact uh, that he had a marital failure and a divorce but the way you the know God, who else has you and me. Yeah, we, we haven't been divorced, but we've had marital I, failures. Yeah, my wife can catalog yeah. marital failures. And here's the thing: that kind of tells you, in my view, the sincer- that 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 speaks to the sincerity of this all the more. Meaning that he has he he is he is drawing closer to his Lord as a result of the thorn in his flesh. Mm-hmm. That's that's the Book of Romans right there, mm-hmm. live, working itself out, guys. So, Aaron, do you have a comment you want to make on this at all? No, it's just incredibly encouraging, and and much like the, uh, some I would just caution folks that much like uh, the, the missionary that was killed by the the Sentinelese uh, a couple weeks ago, and some of the criticism that he's received um, posthumously uh, because of his methods or tactics or lack of preparation, um, a, a lot of us, most of us, ninety nine percent of us maybe have never been in a situation where we literally are at risk of taking an arrow because of our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's all have a lot of grace because, again, he's not the hero, and he'll let you down the same way all of us have let you down, and you've let other people down. Remember who this, the hero, as Steve said, of the story 
is, and let's be really, really cautious to rush to any sort of critical judgment about uh, about methods. Of course, again, I need it. theology is obviously important, but when you have a platform like that, it's um, I think it's incumbent upon us to show a lot of grace in those times. Not saying that we need to change ourselves or change our theology. No, lots of grace. Several years ago, when I was a baby Christian, I was driving to work one day and I was listening to the late. Adrian Rogers on the radio. And it was during the first 10 commandments controversy in Alabama. And, uh, he was standing up for, uh, for judge Moore putting the 10 commandments monument in the Alabama Supreme court. And then he turned to the audience and said, but I wonder how many of you that are calling your local talk shows all worked up about this. How many of you even have the 10 commandments posted in your home? And I was like, I was like donkey when he said that I was like, you cut me deep Shrek, you know? And I, Man, I, I got on my cell phone. I, I'm, I'm on the way to the station. I called, I called Damien home. I don't know what you're doing today, <laughs> but whatever, whatever we've got planned, we've got to have the Ten Commandments in our house because it just the point that was being made there was, you know, you're all worked up about the show over here. Are you doing this in your own life? So to, to, to reinforce Aaron's point, theology is important. Before you check Chris Pratt's theology, not saying you shouldn't, I'm saying before you do that, ask yourself, have you taken a risk to share the gospel anywhere close to the risks he's taken right now? Ask yourself that question. Let's get to some fake news or not. One of our favorite segments this week. Um, we'll begin with this clip, which if I were Donald Trump, I would be begging for this to happen. So now that Bob Corker's time in the Senate will end in a few weeks, what happens now? He was asked earlier this month if he is planning to run for president. He was quoted as saying, I haven't ruled it out. Of course, you know, my natural thing would just be to do business. I mean, that's what I did prior to being in the public arena. Um, it's something I, I don't want any of my service currently to be affected by any thinking like you just mentioned. So I want to finish up. I want to finish up strongly. We want to continue to work with everyone to try to make good things happen. But then um, is that a possibility? Uh, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to sit down and assess at that time. Man, if you are on Trump's political team, I'd be like finding some shadowy, well, not 527 groups anymore. They're called super PACs. They don't have to like report for like a year who they are. It's just whether Kasich, Corker, Flake, any of all, throw them all in. As if I could get a primary where someone comes at me from the left so that it forces me to, to not listen to, because a lot of Trump's issues are whoever was the last person that he, he, he took advice from, that forces Trump to go right and not listen to Javanka for the next 12 months. Is a, is a political gift from heaven. Again, I know you're, some of you are saying, Steve, presidents who are primaried never win. Here's the problem. In modern history, every president that's been primaried has been primaried from the direction of his own base. Meaning, Kennedy primaried Carter from the left from the direction of his own base, Carter's own base. Buchanan primaried Bush from the right from the direction of Bush's own base. No one's ever been primaried from the opposite direction of their base. Because it's simple physics, guys. An action equals leads to an opposite or equal reaction, right? If you primary Trump from opposite of his base, which way is he then going to go? It's inertia. Where is he going to go? It's going to go to the right. He's going to go towards it towards his base. 
And so he's going to be out there for the for six months soaking all, all the oxygen out of the room from the Democrats, Battle Royale, because the, the, the ratings that Trump draws, the power of the presidency on top of that. And he's going to be out there just dropping every culture war bomb that his base loves while Corker and F- or Flake and or Kasich are over here talking about process and um, you know the dignity of the office and all that kind of stuff. And Trump's going to be out here dropping some of the bitches on NFL players that aren't even kneeling anymore. And the bitch, if you are on, if you're with Trump 2020, you are begging. In fact, go out, start finding the finding the shadowy money people right now to call Bob Corker up. You know, I really think you should consider running. I mean, I, you know, somebody's got to hold Trump's feet to the fire. Now that, now that would be some 4D chess. Next clip. So many thoughts flood over me about George H.W. Bush and the years and years of watching him in so many roles. The political role, which people have acknowledged, 1988 was a brutal campaign. Lee Atwater's uh, deathbed confessions for the Willie Horton ads and other things that, that transpired. But the contrast between that and the tough decisions he made, John Meacham referring to that tough budget decision, which did set the stage for years and years of prosperity. That's a lie. Uh, it's not even fake news. It's just a flat out lie. Does anybody remember Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign slogan against George Herbert Walker Bush? Do you remember what it was? It's the economy, economy stupid. stupid. And that was such a great message because what was the economy doing at that time? It wasn't great. You know, I don't know maybe why it wasn't great. Yeah. <sighs> Biggest tax increase in the history of uh, the United States of America. Might have been one of the reasons why. So there was that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's I, I, that's what Andrea Mitchell says there is a complete and total lie. It's not even fake news. It's a lie. That's an evergreen pretty much with her, though. It, it, it does seem to be a, a, a song that gets played on loop. Yes. All right. I want to show you this now. Here's the shot. Watch this. The shot. Well, look, George Herbert Walker Bush, like no president, especially loves dealing with the press. I mean, they're there to kind of annoy you and okay. to press you, and, and we did that. But he respected the institution, I think. Um, mm. He didn't love sitting down for interviews. He didn't love submitting himself to that. There was, you know, he was kind of felt in some ways um, that that process in some ways was, was, was just a nuisance. But I think Charles is, is exactly right. Um, he was accessible. He did do interviews. We interviewed him, Charles and I, together, and I know Sam and others many times. He did news conferences. Of course, this was a different environment, a media ecosystem, when George Herbert Walker Bush was president. We, there were formal news conferences. There were formal networks. This was before the age of the Internet and before cable exploded in, into what it is now. So he... Had he may he may have lacked the vision thing, but he had a lot of issues he cared about, and he was quite mm-hmm. comfortable um, expressing them. Sometimes awkwardly, but trying to express them uh, through the, the the journalists and media who attended. All right, so there's the shot. Media kumbaya. George Herbert Walker Bush. We loved him. He loved us. That chaser is going to be a female dog. Watch this. I don't want to be argumentative, Mr. Vice President. You do, Dan. <laughs> no, this is not a no, great sir, night because I, I want to talk about why I want to be president, why those 41% of the people are supporting me. And, and Mr. I Vice don't President, think it's these fair questions to judge a whole career. It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? 
Well, now, Mr. would you like that? Uh, Mr. I Vice President, for you, but I don't have respect for what you're doing here tonight. Mr. Vice There's President, I think you'll agree that your qualification for president and what kind of leadership you'd bring to the country, flavors. what kind of government you'd have, what kind exactly. of people you'd have around him is much more Fragrances. important than what you just referred to. I'd be happy well, to. I want to be that. judged on the whole record. Well, and you're not. And I'm trying me an to set the record straight. You invited me to come here to talk about. I thought the whole record. I want you to talk about the record. You sat in a meeting with George Shultz. Yes. He got apoplectic when he found out that you were, you and the president were being part of missiles to the. Can you explain how you were supposed to be the? Yes. Uh, you are. Yeah. You're an anti-terrorist. I do so much yeah. so that could all this kumbia be what uh, stuck in Rather's craw for so long that made him go after uh, President Bush's son uh, years later? Could that kumbia be singing then too? Yeah, uh, uh, some people might call what we just watched kumbia. Some people might call it, you know, brotherly love, kinship. I got another word for it. Uh, cow chips? Come on. And I like Frank Says No, all right? That's why I know he's better than that. Come on, man. That's complete fake news. That is complete fake news. As the great prophet Nick Nolte once said to Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours, you weren't partners, you weren't brothers, and you sure as hell weren't friends, all right? So just stop it. Stop it. Hour two is next. All right, we are back with hour two of the Steve Day Show here on Blaze Media Live and on demand. 888-900-3393 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up in just a matter of moments, a little Pop Culture Tuesday. But first, we've got to talk about one of our partners in a way that Aaron will not so cleverly disguise as his own weekly humble brag. Aaron. Yep. Uh, this year, you could be the uh, coolest relative or Santa or what have you gift giver ever with iTarget Pro for the gun lover in your life. It's a really, really cool product that I've been using now for a couple of weeks. It uses your smartphone and a proprietary app tracks the caliber specific bullet that you can put in your gun uh, which fits, again, inside your firearm. And uh, this app will detect exactly where your shots are landing on a target using your phone. It's completely safe, comes with a caliber-specific laser target system and instructions, so you can begin training immediately. Just go to the letter itargetpro.com, check out the video, choose your caliber, and download the app so you're ready when the system arrives. Right now, get free shipping Free shipping through the end of the year, plus save an additional 10% when you use the offer code STEVE. I don't know why we're using that since since I'm doing these, but, you know, it's his show, I guess. Offer code STEVE when you purchase the iTarget Pro system. Save money, save time, take your skill to the next level safely and effectively. It's the letter itargetpro.com, offer, offer code STEVE. Don't give, don't give, I should say, in English this time. Don't give just any gift. Give something that could potentially save somebody's life. iTargetPro.com, free shipping now through the end of the year. All right, time for some Pop Culture Tuesday here on uh, the Steve Day Show. This is where we take a look each week at the intersection between culture and conservatism and, and perhaps at no other point in the year do pop culture and conservatism intersect more 
than they do here this Christmas season. So for our final three weeks uh, before we head off to Christmas break, we've been doing sort of an Advent series during Pop Culture Tuesday. Last week, we took the, took a look at, at really the two kingdoms that intersect, um, that represent that are the heart of the Christmas story. And it's really the same conflict that rages in our culture today. Next week, we're going to take a look at some of our most cherished Christian traditions and see uh, what origins, what what do they symbolize? We're going to talk about that next week. This week, we're going to talk about something that uh, a lot of people just kind of chalk up. Is it myth? Is it fairy tale? Should it be taken literally? You know, we, we put these stars, if not an angel, but most of us have a star at the top of our Christmas trees. What does it really represent? What was the Christmas star? We had a presentation about this. And at the, the church our family attends this weekend. Uh, and it, it came from a book called The Great Christ Comet, Revealing the True Star of Bethlehem. And it's written by a guy that has given this presentation all over the world, including prestigious academic institutions like Cambridge. His name is Colin Nickel. We've, we've prov- provided for you this week sort of an abbreviated version of this is a much longer presentation. But here are a few of the highlights. Check this out. I want to talk, first of all, a little bit about Mark Twain, the well-known American writer. Because Mark Twain took great pleasure in highlighting that his birth in 1835 coincided with the appearance of Halley's Comet in the sky for the first time in 75 years. Commenting on this in 1880, he even predicted that he would die when Halley's Comet completed its orbit and was next visible in the sky in 1910. And in his autobiography in 1909, he wrote, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It is coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said, no doubt, now here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together, they must go out together. Well, God apparently appreciated the humor because unbelievably, Mark Twain died at the very time that Halley's Comet was rounding the sun. Now, the coincidence of celestial phenomena and leaders' births, coronations, and other key moments could be regarded as very significant in the ancient world. If a future king's birth or coronation was attended by some great astronomical sign, that could be regarded as a wonderful omen for their reign and set them apart for greatness. Take, for example, one of Rome's most formidable enemies, Mithridates the Great, In his propaganda, he made much of the fact that two comets had appeared, one at the time of his birth in 135 BC and another at the time of his coronation 15 years later. These, it was claimed, had heralded his greatness. And in 44 BC, just after the death of Julius Caesar, uh, during funeral games held in his honor, A tremendously bright comet was seen in Rome. And this was regarded by the population of Rome as being an indication that Caesar had been accepted among the gods. And by the future emperor, Caesar Augustus, as a wonderful omen of his reign as Caesar's chosen heir. 
In these cases, a real celestial phenomenon occurred at a birth, a coronation, or some other key moment, and this was perceived to be a wonderful portent. In our text today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be considering the star of Bethlehem. Today, the importance of the star is often overlooked. In fact, in one survey of Christians in England, when they were asked to summarize the story of Christmas, less than half failed to mention the star. In our culture, the star is largely reduced to a sentimental, uh, romantic symbol of Christmas that we like to see above the Magi on the Christmas cards or perhaps over Jesus' cradle. But the star was much, much, much more than that for Matthew. For Matthew, it was an amazing phenomenon that demonstrated powerfully, unequivocally, and specifically that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The celestial events that attended the birth and death of Mark Twain, the birth and coronation of Mithridates, and the funeral games of Caesar pale into insignificance compared to what happened at Jesus' birth. The star has been a focus of my research for a decade or so, and my aim this morning is to introduce you to the star as for the first time, so that you're drawn into the story of the nativity in a fresh way, taken aback by the awesome power of God as it's displayed in the heavens, and encouraged and strengthened in your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. First, I want to consider the story of the star. I want to work our way through Matthew's account to discover what the star did to lead a group of astronomers and astrologers from their homeland in the east, hundreds of miles right to Jesus to worship him. Now, most historians and biblical scholars are agreed that Jesus was born in 5 or 6 BC because Herod died in 4 BC the early in 4 BC. So what Matthew recounts about the star should be taken as occurring in the years 8 to 5 BC. The first thing I want you to notice about what Matthew says about the star is that it appeared. It appeared. Matthew tells us that when Herod met with the Magi, he was strangely eager to know when the star had first appeared. Now, if you read Matthew's account carefully, you'll see that that's weird because the Magi say when they come to Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we have seen a star at its rising and have come to worship him. So it was the rising of the star that was the catalyst for their 30, 40 day journey to Judea. And it evidently occurred just a couple of months before their arrival in Judea. The Magi obviously regarded the rising as the key moment coinciding with Jesus' birth. But Herod wanted to allow the possibility that the Messiah's birth may have taken place before that, at the time of the star's first appearance, or indeed any time after that. And we're informed that the Magi were able to tell him the precise date when the star had first appeared. Clearly, they told him it was over a year beforehand because based upon what they told him, Herod determined that children in not only their first year, but also their second year, should be killed in Bethlehem. So this reveals that the star had been completely absent from the sky, and then at one point on one particular day, it was first spotted by the Magi. And the Magi made a record of that first observation 
which was the star's first appearance. And what a wonderful moment that must have been. The next major major event that I want you to take note of is the star's rising. The Magi, as we've mentioned, talk about this in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we have seen his star at its rising and have come to worship him. This word rising is actually a technical astronomical term for when a star, a planet, or a comet, after being too close to the sun to be visible because the sun bleaches out the surrounding sky, suddenly reemerges above the sun, just above the horizon, on the eastern horizon, before the sun bleaches it out. And that is that moment is called the rising. And that was regarded as the most important occasion in a star's career. Now, whatever breathtaking and and extraordinary thing that this star did in connection with its rising absolutely stunned the Magi and communicated powerfully to them a lot of important information, prompting them to turn to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah for answers aided no doubt by Jewish neighbors living nearby. And the Magi came to a firm conclusion. This star was disclosing something momentous was happening on earth. The Jewish Messiah had been born. And the star's announcement of the Messiah's birth was evidently so compelling that the Magi became 100% certain that right then in Judea, the Jewish Messiah was a newborn baby. And indeed, they decided to undertake a brutally long and exacting journey to find and worship him. And they bought for him expensive luxury gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, revealing just how highly they esteemed him. When they reached Jerusalem, the Magi understandably assumed that the Jews there would be celebrating their Messiah's birth But in reality, they didn't even know about it. Neither had they interpreted the star as a messianic sign. Matthew tells us that when Herod got wind of the Magi's arrival and their search for this newborn Messiah, he quickly set up a meeting with them. During that meeting, he found out, uh, he, he informed them, first of all, that the Messiah's prophesied birthplace was Bethlehem. And then he found out from them when the star had first appeared. And then he effectively commissioned the Magi to go to Bethlehem and report back to him where the child was under the pretext that he himself was going to go worship him himself. And completely duped by Herod, the Magi left Jerusalem for Bethlehem. And that brings up the next thing that I want you to observe about the star. Because as the Magi set out on their short five to six mile journey southwards from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the star was in the southern sky, appearing to go in front of the Magi to Bethlehem, ushering them there. Matthew gives us uh, plenty of information about the star, more than enough for us to identify what it was. I want you to see that Matthew gives clear indications that the star was a real astronomical phenomenon, a real astronomical body. The Greek word star indicates this. It can be used of an ordinary star, a planet, a comet, or a meteor. As we've already mentioned, the word rising also implies that an astronomical body is in view. 
and that the Magi were record-keeping astronomers who were able to say the precise date when the star first appeared confirms that. There is no basis for believing the star was anything other than a real astronomical phenomenon. In other words, God acting in his capacity as creator and Lord of the heavens and the earth had the heavens signal the dawn of salvation. So then what is the star? What astronomical body matches this description of the star provided by Matthew? After appearing, it remains observable for over a year, having a meaningful and dramatic rising in the eastern sky, and then within a couple of months, shining in the southern sky to guide the Magi to Bethlehem, and then standing over one particular house to reveal the precise location of the Messiah. Needless to say, many theories have been put forward to explain the star, but until now, none has come even close to matching Matthew's account. If you take Matthew's account seriously, there's only one plausible candidate for the star of Bethlehem, a comet. This is the only candidate that fits what Matthew, the church father Ignatius, and the other early Christians in the first couple of centuries wrote about the star. An origin in the third century explicitly asserts that the star was a comet. Only a comet can move from the eastern morning sky to the southern evening sky within a couple of months like the star does. Now that's because it's hurtling through the inner solar system um, and that's, that in that way moves through the stars. Second, the sudden appearance of the star and its long period of visibility over a year can only be explained if it's either a supernova, which we've already ruled out, or a great comet like comet Hale-Bopp, which was actually visible to the naked eye for one and a half years. Third, only a comet can do things that are surprising and extraordinary in connection with their risings. That's because comets that have notable risings, some of the greatest comets in history, are typically making their closest pass by the sun, and therefore at their most active, reacting to the sun, at their brightest, at their longest, and often at their largest. Fourth, the very language that Matthew uses of going before travelers and standing over a location is used in the ancient world of comets. But there's one question that we should all be asking that so often is never asked. What could the star have done to persuade the Magi to cross a long stretch of inhospitable desert traveling hundreds of miles in search of the newborn Jewish Messiah. I don't want to leave it there on a question because um, I'm a capitalist and I think Colin should uh, make money off of his work. The worker is worth his hire. So again, the name of the book is The Great Christ Comet, Revealing the True Star of Bethlehem. It's a couple years old, uh, but uh, you can get it right now on Amazon.com. Colin Nickel. Uh, is who gave that presentation at our family's church last weekend. And he is the author of the book as well. There's a couple of reasons I wanted to play this video. And I, I planned out having this subject in our series once I found out he was coming to speak at our church. And there's, there's two reasons why. One is um, the idea of faith and reason and science and theology. Now, I, I, let me say this from the outset. I believe God is sovereign over all of creation and doesn't have to adhere to the laws of physics. He is the laws of physics. He can make anything happen he wants to happen. 
He can raise the dead to life. He speaks the universe into existence. So I don't feel as, I don't feel as a as a Christian whose worldview begins with the idea that God supernaturally intervened in history actively to raise a dead man to life. You know, Paul says if Christ isn't raised, then our teaching is in vain, and we're all still dead in our sins as Christians. We're the worst of sinners. We're fools. All right. So if 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 we're talking about a supernatural act being the alpha and omega of my belief system. I, I don't need nor feel a compulsion to come up with uh, kitschy scientific, cheeky scientific explanations for the supernatural acts of a sovereign God. But I know there are some of you watching and listening right now who use this as your crutch to reject the law and grace and love and mercy of a sovereign God. This is the excuse you've given yourself. That because these things are supernatural, they cannot be true. You, you have ascribed to your belief system what they call in judicial circles the lemon test. And it, essentially the lemon test says anything that, that is of any theistic nature whatsoever must be rejected as biased. Oh, they won't, they won't tell you that's what it means? Just like they won't tell you that stare decisis means whatever a judge imaginates is now law is. They won't tell you that's what it means. They'll give you some other long, and I know if you're a lawyer, save me your lemon test, uh, you know, open book uh, exam question you got right in law school. I don't care what they theoretically told you, meant. I care about what they actually act on, what it means. And what the lemon test really means is anything that of any, div- any transcendent, theistic, divine standard should be rejected. That's what it really means. Regardless of whatever fanciful words they want to put on it, that's what it really means. And that's where a lot of you, that's where you, that's the excuse you use. That's your fig leaf. That's, that's your crutch that you intellectually justify rejecting a relationship with your creator. And I wanted to play this Two reasons. One of them is for people like you to show that there is actually potentially doesn't it doesn't mean Colin Nickel is right, by the way, but that there is a perfectly I should say potentially natural explanation for this miraculous event. And the fact that he pointed out historical parallels throughout ancient history, you know, it's funny. Nobody ever says, "Boy, I don't I don't really believe Homer. No one ever really says that. And we teach it in our schools. We teach the Iliad and the Odyssey like it's fact. And we have no written manuscripts of anything attributed to Homer for hundreds of years after his death. Hundreds of years. And yet we apply these tests to the scriptures. Why? Why do we have these double standards? Because we don't want to be confronted with our own sinfulness. Again, this is a no BS Year 2019, I'm pronouncing is the year of no BS. You just don't want to believe. Okay, so I wanted, I wanted, I wanted you to hear Collins' hypothesis, the historical parallels he strikes, that there's historical precedent, that he's just not throwing this from the. He didn't just come out of this from the bowels of his rectum. That's why he gets to go speak at places like Cambridge, you know, because some of the scientific records we use nowadays are from the era as far back as he's talking about here. And when we take them out of the divine accountability context, it's funny. We have, we have I mean, he's, he was, he, in this presentation, he's talking about, uh, you know, 
first century Josephus accounts of comets. Nobody questions those. They're counted as history. Funny, though, when, when this particular account from the exact same era is put out there, funny how we're going to question it. And the reason we're going to question it is because I don't want to be divinely accountable for my actions. So I wanted to rip your fig leaf off so that we could stop lying to each other. And you don't need to give me any more of your fanciful, intellectual uh, horse pucky. Let's just keep it real. You don't want to believe. Okay? And, and I can respect that. And I'm sure there's other places as human beings we can find common ground and agree on some stuff. Okay? But you can now dispense with your, there's no potential scientific rationale or basis for any of this. Okay. That's, that's a crock. Doesn't mean Colin is right. But just theorizing how things like this have happened throughout the course of ancient times in the past, it's a perfectly plausible hypothesis. That's why he speaks throughout the scientific community on this. So we can stop lying to each other. You can stop using this as the fig leaf and just admit you just don't want to be accountable. So that's the first reason, Todd, I wanted to play this. Listen, I was, everything you said after but is exactly where my mind was at uh, <laughs> this entire time. Now, I know uh, because I work for the Steve Day Show that in order to extend my contract in the future, I can do any number of things. Well, one of them is bring up Romans as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, that being said, it naturally uh, came into my heart when I'm listening to that. And here's why. That entire time I'm thinking, and I wanted to have it exact, I pulled up. I was thinking about Romans one twenty. For from the creation of the world, the invisible things of him are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. excuse. Preach, man. I mean, that's, like I said, you don't, it, it, you do not need, and Christians are very, very, very much like uh, Steve talks about how Republicans need to clamor onto the, um, the the popular person in Hollywood du jour to legitimize themselves. Christians are often too eager to latch on the things of reason and science. Reason and science are wonderful things. They're they're ultimately uh, endorsed by God and and any Christian church worth having. But we often reverse. We put the cart before the horse mm-hmm. way too many times. We don't act on faith alone and then go searching through those things uh, with that in mind. And here, the point Steve is making is. You, do you absolutely need what he just said to be true? But there's so much there. It is absolutely worth following out and having the conversation about how all creation groans, all creation groans to be restored by God. And that means that God has used the entire canvas of creation to tell his story. Amen. Here's the other reason I wanted to play this, Aaron, is... I can see why someone would say, I don't believe this because if this had happened, if there had been this great star, or in this case, in this hypothesis, this great comet racing across the sky, everybody would have noticed it. Everybody would have followed it. Everybody would have paid attention to it and they would have changed the way they were living in order to to pursue this great phenomenon, particularly in the ancient world when they viewed these things as divine signs, even in occultic pagan religions, they did, as you heard uh, Colin Nickel point out there. Let's test that. A lot of you, these next few weeks, are going to hum, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. You're going to hum, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. 
peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. You're going to hum joy to the world. Let heaven and nature sing. Let earth receive her king. Should I continue? And you've been humming those lyrics this time of year your whole life. And then you walk away. Doesn't change who you are. Doesn't make you live any differently. Stirs your heart. And then you kind of go back to circling the same drain. Are you saying there's nothing new under the sun, brother? Ain't nothing new under the sun, brother. No. Nope. Just new people under the sun that haven't been exposed to it yet. I did for years. I've been I've been a Christmas slappy long before I was a believer. I sang all these songs. When we started the Christmas wars, I wasn't even a believer, and I was like offended we were getting rid of these songs. Now, how how asinine is that? I'm watching John Gibson on Fox News every night and Bill O'Reilly talking about the Christmas wars. I'm not even a Christian, and I'm like, man, we got to sing these songs that are sacred. So sacred, I just spent the rest of the year completely rejecting their message. You're right. Man, there's no precedent at all. None. Nothing I can think of. You mean like, you know, churches are full on the 912 and then empty from and getting progressively emptier from 919 here on? You're right. There is no precedent in human nature at all. I can't think of one in my own life. I can't think of one in human history at all where it's possible the creator of the universe did something magnificent, personal, intimate in order to reach his creation and his creation was just kind of like, meh. All right, man, I got, Aaron, I got nothing. I can't think of any examples. You? Boy, oh, man, no, boy. No, we're, we're, we're basically good, and then that's why. I mean, but there's, there's, no, there's no examples of, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if he um, stopped the, or, you know, made, made sure the sun stayed in the same spot for a little, no. Maybe that would change things. Oh, maybe if we just like I don't know walked around a uh, a city a few times, and then it would just call crumbling, you know, fall, all come crumbling down. Maybe uh, maybe we would. How about a burning bush? Believe that. Yeah, burning bush. No, no. I got something. Hey, Let me tell you okay. what we do. It uh, you like if you watched a body of water. Oh man. Parted in real time, yeah. so you just like. You're like the doors break on through to the other side. You just yeah. walked right through that but thing, maybe right? Maybe we had to do something crazy, like uh, I don't know, but, you know, putting, you know, marking, marking the, the, our, 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 our doors, you know, uh, and then, and then witness everybody else almost in, in, in the land that we were living get killed because this they, will do it. Here, if, if, if you know what, yeah. how about if a dead man came back to live again? Oh, oh that would have to yeah. do it, right? Yeah, yeah, right. All right, back here live on Blaze Media, 888-933-93 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. And for those of you listening on the podcast, if you have time today, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, if you've got time to leave us one of those five-star reviews, we would appreciate it. Now you might be thinking, Steve, I can't stand your show. 
Well, and if you're thinking that, I'm kind of wondering why are you wasting your time here? But we would never ask you to lie. So, you know, don't, you know, don't be dishonest, but maybe just keep that thought to yourself and don't leave us a review at all. For those of you that actually do like the show, uh, those five-star reviews, the more of those that pile up, the more people take a look at this show and say, hey, maybe I should give this podcast a shot. Even if you just have time today to click that little subscribe button, that helps us immensely as well. Thank you to all of you. Thousands of you have done both of those things already. We greatly appreciate that. And if you missed my warning, uh, coming in the, or back in the first hour. Please remember, the most valuable asset most of us will ever acquire as Americans is our own home. And right now, your home equity is more vulnerable than ever before because of home title fraud. We, we don't live in the day and age anymore where people have to go and get hard copy records that they have to show their photo IDs to obtain because that's racist now. Uh, instead, they can just go on the uh, local county website and pilfer your home title from there, forge a signature, Get away with it and gone. You go get go to get that HELOC, go to sell your home, cash in on all that equity you've built in, and it's not there because it's already been liquidated by a thief. Don't let that happen to you. Get your home's title protected via home title lock. It's just pennies on the dollar a day. They'll put a virtual barrier around your home's title. It may be vulnerable already. Find out with a free title scan and report. You can visit hometitlelock.com. That's hometitlelock.com. .com. So a good friend of mine, uh, his name is Greg Jackson. He wrote a book, oh boy, it was probably like 10 years ago now, that was like one of the conservative bestsellers of the year, uh, Conservative Comebacks to Liberal Lies. The book I have coming out in January is sort of a, a, a symbiotic follow-up, uh, truth bombs, confronting the lies conservatives believe. And so Greg wrote a book uh, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, confronting uh, you know liberal lies with conservative comebacks. I have a book coming out next early next year, confronting the lies Republicans are telling conservatives. <laughs> right? His new book it's called 40 rules every sales pro needs to know and i gotta tell you i know greg is a good sales pro because i've been to his house and i make a good living and it's a lot nicer than mine all right so i know that he's good at his job and i was looking over his sales pro rules and i'm like you know we're always talking about we got we got to get into evangelism mode in the culture. We've got to persuade people. We're kind of out of the era of the silent majority where we just throw our moralistic dog whistles out there on election day and the silent majority comes out and shocks people. We got to like win another generation. Several of these principles, I think, that Greg is using to live in a nicer home than me, and I'm not jealous, I just noticed it. Uh, several of those principles that Greg is using to be successful, I think, could help us to be culturally successful as well. And my buddy Greg Jackson joins us now here uh, on Blaze Media. Greg, it's good to talk to you, friend. How are you? Steve, great to see you, buddy. Uh, congratulations on your show and all the success that you're having, including your Michigan podcast, which is bar none the best sports podcast I've ever heard. Uh, well, thank you, man. For, uh, Greg's also a big Mi Michigan fan, which further cements that he is a man of, of fine and, and elite acquired taste, no question about it. So I want to go into some of these principles and that, that you're using, as I've mentioned now for the third time, to live in a lot nicer house than me. Not that I've noticed, but I've noticed. And so I want to know, you know, can, can we take these principles and spread them to a broader context? Because I see things like this, okay? Um, less telling and more selling. All right, so I, I've got an unbelieving neighbor, right? Tell me how that looks 
when I want to have an influence, maybe I want to try and get them to come to church, particularly this time of year with Christmas, right? And maybe they're looking at it more than ever before. What's the difference between, between selling them on the idea or just telling them about it? What's the difference? Well, I think the number, and by the way, I'll just preface it by saying, Steve, that you know my book, 40 Rules Every Sales Pro Needs to Know, is based on 25 plus years of my own experience in sales, sales management, and um, the lessons that I've learned that have uh, enabled me to be successful, but also lessons that I've learned from a lot of my failures. And this is how you know we, we all learn oftentimes the hard way. And so the, the hope in this book is that it, that it will enable people to not only be better in business and in sales, but a lot of these concepts, as you just alluded to, Steve, you can apply toward the art of, it's really the art of relationship building, uh, the art of persuasion, uh, because that's really what life is all about, developing relationships with people. And as Christians, that's that's uh, the two major rules, Steve, as you know, love God and love people. Mm-hmm. And so your example, and so I, what I think is that there are sales professionals and sales pros and the sales professionals are like 99% of people who sell a good or service and they get paid for it. And then there's the pros, the sales pros are the top 1% Steve. Uh, and I would consider you to be uh, the uh, top 1% in your vocation. There are a lot of people who do radio, and this isn't false flattery. You know, I followed you for a long time. We've uh, been friends, and you know, as 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 you know, friendly as we are, this goes beyond friendship. You are truly, uh, you exhibit a lot of the 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 practices and techniques that I lay out in the book. And so, the sales pro, thank you for the for the screenshot there. Uh, the sales pro. They do certain things on a more consistent basis day in and day out. It's not like there's any, this isn't like the book, The Secret, where the, there's some like, uh, you know, uh, magic eight ball that you have to shake up. And the, these aren't secretive things that, that people do. You know, Vince Lombardi had three plays, basically, they, you know, between the tackles and the left and the right. And, and maybe they dialed in a pass, but they did those three things better than any other team. The other teams knew that it was coming at them, but mm-hmm. they still couldn't do because they executed those plays much better than any other team. And so to answer your question, so just to get, that's just a brief background. The sales pro, they do these things on a daily basis that I lay out in the book and it's not an exhaustive list. Perhaps there's more, but these are the things that I've learned over 25 years plus in sales and in business and in sales management that I see uh, the, the top of the top do on a consistent basis. All right. So the day to day thing. All right. So right now we know our neighbors are looking at going to, you know, the C and E thing, Christmas and Easter. What I hear you saying is, you know what? You're not saying don't ask your friends to go to church at Christmas, but the likelihood you'll be successful. If the only time you ever brought it up was right now so that it seems kind of contrived as opposed to the daily relationship of being a neighbor, of building that bond, of building that trust where I think now you're not necessarily trying to get over on me, but you care about me. Is that kind of what I hear you saying in this context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And what I've, what I've recognized, what I've realized when you, you brought up the chapter entitled less telling, more selling. 
which an old boss, actually, I can't take credit for that one. He taught me that one. And you're right, Steve, people don't really care. And this is true in business. This is true in the scenario that you just posed. This is true in marriage and in all relationships, which is people don't care how much you know, unless they know how much you care. So in your scenario, you have a neighbor, you want them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the time of year to do that. Mm -hmm. And in your scenario, which I love, um, you know, I haven't talked I to you all year, but do you want to come to Christmas Eve service with me? Exactly. <laughs> so the real question we should be asking ourselves and all listeners, and by the way, I'm preaching to myself as well, is how much are we going out of our way to really getting to know our neighbors? Do we know even know their names? Hmm. Uh, do we know the names of their kids? Have we tried to establish a relationship with them? Because what I've noticed about the most successful people in business, the people who are able to develop relationships the best, is that they truly care about their neighbors, their colleagues, their coworkers. They listen to them. They ask them the right questions. They don't feign interest. Um, they, they show genuine interest in the people with whom they have the closest relationships with because they care about them and love them. All right, I got to ask you, there's another principle I absolutely want to make sure we don't run out of time because I want to address this one. Superficial discussions usually yes. result in superficial understanding. And, you know, we are, we're trying to persuade people in the arena that I'm serving in every day on matters of transcendent and existential import. And that means that, hey, you know me, I'm a Star Wars nerd. I'm a superhero nerd. I can, I can do superficial nerdgasms with the best, man. Am I, you, you know, Amy has said to me over the years, if she has not had my three children, she'd swear I am a virgin, okay? Because no one should know as much useless information as I do without being under a perpetual vow of chastity in a mom's basement, right? So I, I, there is a time for, and we can build bonds and initial convert, but ultimately, if we're going to persuade people of matters of existential import, at some point, we got to have a conversation about matters of existential import, right? At some point, it can't be superficial. No, you're absolutely right. And by the way, we could apply this to politics. We could apply it to personal relationships. We could apply it to business. And what I've noticed is that the people who are able to have the most success in their field, whether it's talk radio like yourself or whether it's pastoring a church, uh, teaching a Sunday school class, running a business, are those who take the time to have in-depth conversations they don't talk at superficial levels. Of course, superficiality might be the only thing that you can do from time to time. Maybe you don't have as much time. Maybe you just want to pique somebody's interest. So maybe there are those types of conversations. But what I've noticed, Steve, and by the way, let's apply this to the Steve Dace show. I've been following your show for a number of years. We've written a book together, been to your house. Uh, I know I've, I've known you pretty well and your wife is spot on in her assessment but this is <laughs> that god has given you the ability to really drill down and to really teach and to make people understand and the the main reason that you are able to do this i believe is because you ask the right what we call in sales and business as high value questions and the reason i think let's use the republicans for example uh the republican party why with the Republican Party, when 80% of Americans claim to be Christians, when a vast majority claims to have conservative views, when 
you know, the vast majority of Americans are in line with the issues that Republicans and conservatives say that they are in favor of the most. Why did we just lose the House of Representatives? Here's the answer. Because Republicans, for the most part, engage in superficial discussions, Mm -hmm. which result in a superficial understanding and subpar results. If you know what I'm saying, yeah. The other side's out there talking about social justice. We did a temporary tax cut in two years. That's all that we did for two years in the House. That's all they did. Superficiality. That's what you're talking about. Well, what I'm saying, yeah. So it's unless so. There's in, in sales we call it linking features to benefits. So yeah, we had a we had a tax cut, but how often did you hear real world examples mm-hmm. about? what that really means and not at a superficial level but at a, at a deeper level i'm glad you what brought the- that up greg one of the things that bothered me on the repeal obamacare effort for example is yeah. where were all the the nurse practitioners and doctors and and single moms who couldn't afford their their premiums anymore uh because of what obamacare had done when you've got a platform like the white house and both chambers of congress why didn't they show all these real world examples of what obamacare had done to the in- and this is the industry you work in so you know it as well as anybody does right why didn't they use that to drive that point home? Instead, they just kept it on a very superficial repeal, replace level. And they never, it's the old Margaret Thatcher line, right? First you win the debate and then you win the vote, right? They never tried to win the debate on that. That guy, that kind of goes to exactly what you're talking about. Meaning I, I never sold you on my product or why you thought you needed it. And now I'm shocked after all the time I, I put into you, how come you didn't buy it? Well, you never, you never sold me on it. You never gave me, told me why this was going to make my life any better or any different. Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And by the way, um, you know, I certainly have my differences with, with uh, our president, but the Republican party could learn a lot from Donald Trump. How did a guy with no political experience manage to win the presidency Mm -hmm. with all of in spite of being outspent, uh, uh, you know, the, the media 99 to one favor, uh, unfavorable coverage to favorable coverage. How was he able to do that? Well, I'll tell you how he was able to do that because he didn't have superficial discussions that resulted in superficial understanding. Say what you will about our president, Donald J. Trump, but he had in-depth conversations. He is a darn good salesman and he made sure that people understood his message. He underscored his message. And what in one of the concepts that we talk about in sales and business is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. In other words, don't assume that your customers understand mm. the benefit that accrue mm-hmm. with the action you're, that you're going to take. You just brought up Obamacare. We had a perfect opportunity, Republican majority, Supreme Republican Supreme Court, Republican president, and they still didn't repeal Re- Obamacare, Steve. We still didn't defund Planned Parenthood, Steve. And why didn't we do that? Because we had, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that we didn't have an in-depth conversation with the American people. And what that would have entailed is if you really want to make America great again, then we have to become good again. And we can't become good again if we continue to kill 3,000 babies a day with government funding. We can't become good again if we have a anti-christical uh, 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 a socialist, anti-biblical healthcare system like Obamacare. See, they didn't take it to those levels. And therefore, they were unable, even with their congressional majority and a mm-hmm. Republican president, to do what they said they were going to do. 
This, you what you just heard, is why you got to get the book, okay? 40 rules every sales pro needs to know. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop him from talking because he might sell some people that he ought to be hosting this show instead of me with a, with a rant like that. Uh, it's good to see you again, my friend. Congrats on the book and your success. I mean it. Thank you, brother. All right. Take care. Tell your wife and kid I said hello. All right. God bless you, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Dude, that whole thing on superficiality, is that not what we've talked about? Like, mock, uh, mock Ocasio-Cortez all you want. But she is, it's, it's, it has no merit. It's a false doctrine. It's a false religion. But she's out there having, it may, and it may sound like Miss Teen South Carolina, but when you strip away the window dressing, she's having, she's having these kinds of significant conversations with people. You know, and the Republicans are out there talking about, you know, what the unemployment rate was last month. That kind of goes to what Greg was just talking about, doesn't it, Todd? Oh, yeah. Well, Ocasio-Cortez keeps putting her in those environments, whether she's doing a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's uh, office or she's out there uh, protesting. She's she's co- constantly with the people. Now, whether or not it's even a scam on la- that level, if she's just using them as props or, or genuinely feels uh, a part of them, uh, that's effective. I mean, it, it's reminiscent of... Uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, of the Last Supper, surrounding yourselves with people. Again, as we talk about a Trinitarian God is ultimately personal. You And, and Steve has mentioned multiple times in the past, don't treat the, the person in front of you like an algorithm. You need to be actually actually showing genuine concern for the person. You must somehow see yourselves in them and not somebody, even if you're trying to help them, that ultimately in your mind means more to you. Like, hey, look at me. Look at how I'm helping. I'm helping. I'm helping. Instead of genuinely concerned about the other. Uh, it, that I, I've, you've told me a lot about Greg in the past, uh, but I've never been uh, exposed to uh, him on that level. And there's clearly a level of authenticity. There, he's his job is sales pitches, and that's abundantly clear that he cares about it a lot. You've told me he's successful at that, but beyond that, his job is clearly, like you said, love of people. Here's the thing that though Aaron is. And I know Greg would agree with this. You to to follow through on his forty rules, you got to believe in what it is you're selling. Yeah, I'm a little bit bummed though because uh, superficiality is kind of the only thing I bring to the show. Uh, but <laughs> no, I this this is especially difficult to remember when we're interacting with people online in the digital space as well because all we see are a bunch of characters mm-hmm. and then the names assigned to that, and so we put them in. Especially for dudes, we put them in a box and mm-hmm. they stay in that box. Really hard to see a person behind those pixels. See you tomorrow. John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.